You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And welcome to episode 31. And I hope you all remain safe and healthy. So let's start things off with a brief show note. There will be no show release next Sunday, January 31st, because I will be traveling. And I will be gone long enough that it's severely cussing to the show production schedule. So look for episode 32 on Sunday, February 7th. And Thanks in advance for your patience. And now it's time to highlight this week's new Patreon supporters. I want to say thank you to Tim Warfel and Anastasia Ware. I really appreciate you guys supporting the show. Anna and I follow each other on Twitter, and of course Tim needs no introduction. And thanks once again to all my Patreon supporters. And folks, if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling, please go to patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word. Now, before we roll the show, I do have something to address. A while back, somebody messaged me with uh, saying, what's up with you and birders? Well, the answer to that is nothing. Nothing's up. Uh, I actually like birds, and I like birding. I keep a yard list, and I use eBird to record bird sightings. So I'm a birder, to tell you the truth. And I learned a lot about birding from my buddy Steve Coogan, who is a top-tier birder. And it's just that sometimes I like to poke fun at birding, and and I do it a little bit on this episode coming up. And sometimes it's useful to compare the differences and the similarities between birds and herps and birding and herping. Now, many of you know Rosemary Mosco, who does the excellent Bird and Moon comics. And if you don't, go look her up. Uh, but anyway, Rosemary tweeted recently, and I'm quoting her, If you watch birds, you're a birder. The vast majority of birders I meet tell me, oh, I'm not really a birder. I don't know enough. And Rosemary goes on to say, this is a hobby where most of the people in it feel like they're not really in it uh, because of gatekeeping and condescension. I'm rusty on sparrows, she says. I don't know my crossbill subtypes. I mean, who does? And sometimes I think a morning dove is a kestrel. But I'm a birder. So are you. Well, I want to say thanks, Rosemary, for your tweet and for the timing of it. And, of course, what applies to the world of birding also applies to herping. And it doesn't matter that you're just getting started and that you don't know all the names. And it doesn't matter that you only have a single-digit life list or maybe no life list at all. Traveling the world, that's not required. Uh, Taking snazzy photos is not a necessity. And as far as mispronouncing scientific names, well, that's kind of expected. Uh, Whether you're a scientist studying amphibians and reptiles, or a parent who just takes their kids to the park to see frogs and turtles, or you're anywhere between those two, you're in. Uh, Welcome to the club, brothers and sisters. You're one of us. Now, let's get to this week's show, The Jargon Episode. Over a few months last fall... I asked folks to send me some examples of 
words and phrases used by those of us who love amphibians and reptiles, and you did. And here we are. But the idea of having me drone on about it for an hour or more sounded pretty terrible, so I decided to have a panel discussion of sorts with uh, multiple voices and points of view. So I got a couple buddies to call in and talk to me about it on New Year's Day. Justin Michaels from over Peoria Way, and Andy O'Connor from out west in Washington State. So I really enjoyed talking with Andy and Justin, and it was fun to hear their thoughts on various bits of herp jargon, and of course, we wandered away from the topic here and there, as you might expect from any conversation. Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about the show and the format. And if there's enough positive feedback, I, I'll consider using the format to cover some other subjects uh, for which you are all welcome to provide suggestions. And here we go. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. And we have a little bit different episode today on So Much Pingle. And it's New Year's Day, and I want to say Happy New Year's Day to my panelists on this today's show, in, which includes Andy O'Connor. Happy New Year. Cheers. Cheers. And Justin Michaels. Hello, everyone. So Justin and I uh, are in the middle of an ice storm, and neither one of us can leave our house more or less, because there's a plate of ice across the Midwest and a bunch of people are looking out at the icicles on their trees and their gutters and whatnot. And you've got rain out there, Andy, in Washington, as per usual. Yep. 50 and raining. Nice to know some things never change. <laughs> okay. Year, well, <laughs> oh, yeah. New Year. Happy New Year to both of you. Uh, looking forward to 2021 and um, hopefully a better year than last year, eh? Yeah vaccinations and herping trips hopefully hopefully yes hopefully so today i have brought you guys together today on a little bit of a different show uh as you know uh for a while for probably half dozen episodes i asked our listening audience to send in herp jargon various phrases and terminologies that people who are into amphibians and reptiles use and uh, this is something i'm interested in i think a lot of people are interested in this sort of thing so and I got a bunch of people who sent me some stuff, uh, which who I will thank at the end of the show. But uh, I thought it would be fun to, to talk about uh, herp jargon and discuss the what people have sent me and what you guys came up with and things that I came up with. And we have a, a list of things to go through. And so to, I think to start all of this off, when we talk about jargon, we're talking about the phrases that uh, we either borrowed from other disciplines or we invented ourselves. And when I say we, I mean the collective community out there. And uh, the first obvious thing that comes to mind is the actual term herp, uh, which is in itself something, you know, jargon or a, a phrase that's a contraction of herpetology or herpetofauna or whatever you will. Uh, and you guys, of course, as well as I have, you guys have talked about this sort of thing probably more than you like. <laughs> and uh, I don't think anybody really cares much for the term. And Probably because the general public associates it with affliction, the herpes affliction. So, so I think there's that, that connotation there. And all of us are tired of the, the jokes that people make, the herpes jokes. And that just gets really kind of tired and we get a little irritated with it. But uh, I don't know. Am I hitting the mark here with you guys? Do you feel the same way with that? or? Yeah, it's trite. I've heard it a million times. Everybody thinks it's fresh and new and hilarious, and it's not. It's the dad joke that like never ends. 
Um, <laughs> you know, my close friends that aren't herpers and my family, they use it appropriately around me and, and they'll say it to their friends when they introduce me to them. But anymore, if it's a coworker or, or someone that has no idea that's what I do, I don't, tr I try not to use the term. I'll, I'll explain that we are amateur biologists or wildlife photographers that focus on reptiles and amphibians. And that gets the conversation going in the right direction faster. Yeah, I, I think herp is not what you want to lead with, right? Not anymore, no. <laughs> Snake hunting is so much easier to say, and then it's just, they get it. You know, and that's the term we used when I was coming up as a kid. Hey, mom, I'll be back. I'm going snake hunting, which doesn't really, I mean, it's, it's a term, but it doesn't really describe field herping or herping in general. One, I don't know how often you guys have to then counter back with, no, I don't shoot them. No, I don't eat them. When when I'm talking to somebody about what I do on vacations with my friends, I don't even go there anymore. But yeah, when sure. I was a kid, I'd grab a five-gallon bucket and go, Mom, I'm going snake hunting. Be back in a little bit. Because she introduced me to it. She knew what I was doing. But when I say snake hunting to a stranger, they're like, oh, yeah, me and my paps used to go snake hunting too. We'd clear out a whole den. So... For me, it, I, I don't even use that term. Yeah, because hunting is, you know, many things to many people, right? Right. There's treasure hunting and then there's deer hunting. Right. Two very different things. And I, I think it's funny too, you know, we've all been, we've all been in groups where the, the subject comes up and people are like, we need a better phrase. Let's come up with a better phrase. We're not leaving this campfire till we have a better term than herp. And two hours later, uh, and the beer's all gone and... There's no better term. <laughs> I see this also on forums too. People are like, well, we need to come up with a better name. And then in the end, nobody really comes up with anything that sticks. So, yeah, I mean, you, there's fishing and birding. And I don't know what we would say. So snaking, frogging. <laughs> well, that's, that's the problem is when you go fishing, you could fish for any species of fish, but they're all fish. And when you yeah. go birding, you can go for raptors or metal larks, but you're, you're looking for birds. But yeah. when you go herping, you're covering reptiles and amphibians, snakes, frogs, salamanders, crocodiles, yeah, lizards. It doesn't so that's, well. that's the harder part is we're using a term that covers uh, multiple families. Yeah. And of course, you know, you could go fishing for compliments too, right? I mean, <laughs> fishing is a, is a term that's sort of ingrained. I like to catch something yeah. when I go fishing. So I don't <laughs> tend not to fish for compliments. Yeah. So we're kind of stuck with this term and, you know, I, I mean, I made my peace with it and everything, but uh, I, it's funny how people, you know, they're either okay with it or not okay with it. And I think part of it is just uh, having to explain yourself uh, every time that kind of puts a, the damper on it. You could save time and just not talk to people though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this would be a really boring <laughs> podcast. No, I meant just like the normies. I'd still listen. Well, <laughs> well, that's a, it's funny. Uh, um, just for a second there, you also brought up something, Justin, uh, you talked about normies and we're talking about people who, who really don't have an interest in amphibians and reptiles. And there's different phrases for those too, right? We call them the normies, or I like to use the term muggles Yeah, or muggles, muggles. or civilians uh, or, yeah. So there's even terms for, for folks like that. So, uh, so to all you muggles out there, uh, I'm sorry. I also like the idea that uh, there's other kinds of, you know, we, we talk about herping, which, you know, is the, 
active, you know, pursuing and observing amphibians and reptiles in the field, but there's also things like armchair herping and virtual herping and herping via satellite, you know, where people don't leave their room and then see what other people are up to and, and get their herping, you know, they're herping in that way. And then uh, also uh, herping via satellite where you're looking for sheets of tin and plywood and junk piles and things using Google Earth and other tools like that. Really, that opens into multiple genre because actively searching for new locations via Google Earth is not what I would consider like any of those terms to mean as opposed to what we used to do with like Field Herp Forum where I was herping vicariously through someone's fantastic post. You know, yeah. I'm not actively I'm not actively doing anything other than enjoying somebody else's finds, but that would be armchair herping, armchair herping or yeah. uh, you know, herping vicariously. People, people definitely are scouting spots though Google Earth. Uh, and I only oh, know it's because it affected me <laughs> where somebody was like I found all this tin in the middle of nowhere and it's just great. There's all kinds of stuff. And then I, I was like, Hey, uh, I'm glad you're having a good time, but I put that there probably 20 years ago with my friend James and we're happy to share it with you, but just don't like put here. If you turn off this dirt road, turn down this dirt road and then park here by this blue house and cross the street and go, you know, I was like, Oh my God. So that's actually happened where I've had to say, <laughs> you know, it's not my land, but, you don't Got need to camouflage your pins, son. Well, I have this year. Pingleton actually uh, made some boards that were camo, and I put them out uh, at, at that same site. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I haven't. Did you look and see if you can see them from the from? Yeah, I took, took Andrew Dubois there whenever that was, October. Uh, socially distanced with masks on, and we found a bull snake. Um, it, was, it was cold out, though, and we didn't even expect that. So we did. Can you see them from outer space, though? Did you check? Uh, I haven't checked from outer space, but we'll have the to pro- Well, the problem is it's historical. They don't update that stuff very often. Once they oh. have, if you had a bright silver tin site out that you could see on Google Earth and you go out there and hide your tin, it doesn't matter because it's, they're not going to redo that picture for a few years at a time, I think. I don't know the exact timeline, but it takes years for them to take new pictures unless there's development or something. So, I see. yeah, okay. you got to hide them. You got to hide them the first time. Yeah, I don't know how I didn't know how often it updated, but that's well, fine. I, I went old. I went to a lot of effort to to hide boards by uh, painting them green and then painting, putting blotches on them and yep, uh, wisps of grass like grass uh, streaks and things like that on them. So I don't know. We'll see how that works. But uh, anyway, uh, getting kind of back to the the whole herp herping herps thing, I, I got an email from uh, Mike Rochford about the term herpster. And uh, he says, I, I have a, contrib- a contribution to the herp jargon list. He, he says, I think my wife, Sarah, coined the term herpster in 2013. It was the signature drink at our wedding. She came up with a name <laughs> and I had never heard it prior to that. And I can't remember what was in the drink, which just leads me to believe that he had a lot of, lot of drinks. Uh, but it was delicious, and it certainly contained alcohol. And they ran out of it before the night was over. So she may have contributed more to herping culture than me. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I thought I like that was going to be herps, like herpers that are hipsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I like the fact that, it, it, that there's a drink called the herpster out there. Uh, yeah, uh, I need to have it now. in there. You're holding out on us, Mike. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, Mike, you have to get Sarah to tell us what that is. Uh, but I do have some sad news for you, Mike. Uh, the term herpster predates your wedding. Uh, I, I've known people who use the term as far back as the mid-90s, so, and it probably goes back before then, too. But uh, So herpster is something that uh, I can't say I've ever heard anybody come up with a drink called a herpster, so I think you, you have some uniqueness there. But as, as a term for herpsters, um, I'm afraid it's been invented probably more than once. I'll drink if you to have that. that. <laughs> yeah. If you have that recipe or you can get it from Sarah, uh, send it on in and we'll, we'll get it on the air. I mean, herper, herper as a term to call each other is a lot better for us to understand than what someone that doesn't know what we do calls us. I mean, snake freaks or weirdos or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's esoteric. I like it. I think the people that have been doing it for a while have tack on and plans on how we get past the herpes joke when we're explaining to a a new friend or coworker of what we do in our spare time. But uh, I can't think of a better term just because of all the roadblocks we've, we've mentioned. It is what it It is. is. And it's well established. I mean, yeah. Well, I thought it was amazing too. when Josh and I got our book out there and got, you know, manuscripts submitted and the name submitted and, and they didn't really blink. I mean, it's it's called the Field Herping Guide. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, it has, you know, amphibians and reptiles in the subtitle. But it was amazing to me that we didn't get any pushback from the publishers. Like, what? You can't put that term on there. People will think it's a book about herpes. But I think because we had amphibians and reptiles on the front page with it, that kind of negated that. Also, uh, I got an email from Steve Barton, who's uh, up in the Chicago area. He's a, a veterinarian and a, a herper, an adventure guy up there. And uh, he pointed out that that uh, our, our buddy Brian Hughes had, had written a little essay about the term herp and herping and all that. And uh, and it's, it's sort of the same reason that we brought up before, that it's not a great term to use when you're trying to educate uh, the general public because it's one more thing for them to get over. Right. It's, you know, more uh, the idea that you just use the term amphibians and reptiles or, you know, snakes, lizard, turtles, and try to avoid that. And if it comes up later, it comes up later. But that's yeah, uh, certainly kind of a good point, right? No, it's, it is a good point. Reach the widest audience possible. Yeah. And, and Brian's episode talked greatly about that. He has uh, a wealth of knowledge on that. On the flip side, not to be devil's advocate, but I would say it's so well established at this point. It's on Wikipedia and Urban Dictionary. So like yeah. kind of both ends of the spectrum of where you'd go to look something up in terms of trying to find just straight knowledge and trying to find like street slang. It's described exactly the same on Wikipedia and Urban Dictionary as the act of searching for amphibians and reptiles. So, I mean, we've gotten gotten to a point where it's a pretty established word. It may not be in Merriam-Webster's, but it's in Wikipedia and Urban Dictionary. So, Good point. You said on the flip side, was that a herp joke too or...? Uh, yeah, we'll never know. We'll get to that, won't we? <laughs> uh, I'm glad you brought that up. But it's funny when you talk to people from other countries, they don't really use that term very much either. They don't really, they don't like, like, uh, I think you remember I talked to uh, Joron Spaybrook and he indicated that European herpers don't really use the term herp or herper or, or things like that. Also, when I talked to um, uh, Scott Iper in Australia, you know, they, they talk about twitching. You know, we think of twitching as something the uh, the British use for uh, a term for bird watching, but apparently it's a little more widespread 
than that. And he talked about something called pteropod twitching, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting. I'd never heard that term before. So, you, you know, you go out and basically everything that walks or flies or crawls is, is, is fair game. And, and you're, you twitch the lot of them, you know, which I guess twitching is, you know, you see them, record them, take them off your list, whatever. But, uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting term. And that, I don't think that really has caught on in the United States. No, I haven't even seen it on social media that much. And I, I mean, I have a few Aussie friends that I follow on Instagram and, and Facebook, and I hadn't seen them refer to it as that. So it was a new one when I saw it on the list. I kind of like it, but I immediately confused it with uh, that social media video game streaming thing that people do. Yes. You know uh, what I'm uh, talking about? Yeah, Twitch TV or something. Yeah, hmm. that was what I. So my brain was like, no, that that term already means something else. It can't mean two things. But the English language does that all the time. So pretty fluid. But I, I like twitching. I mean, in term, you know, compared to bird watching, which yeah. sounds so boring. Sorry, birders, but doesn't twitching sound better? What are you doing? Um, bird watching. What's that guy over there doing? Well, he's twitching. Right. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <It> just <laughs> it's all personal preference, I guess. But do you want a bird or do you want a twitch? You <laughs> I'm not sure I want to do either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you can twitch while you're birding it. Uh, but we're getting a, <laughs> into a, another That's subject. Like an itchy twerk. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's just not allowed in, in field herping. We don't want to see any twerking. I also talked to, uh, when I talked to uh, Kamal uh, Shapansky, he's talking about, uh, you know, the folks that pursue salamanders and newts, you know, they, what do you, what do you, what do they call themselves? And the term newt, newtler, newtler. Yeah. Uh, newtler. newtler. Yeah. yeah. Came up, which that, I kind of, I kind of like that. It's, it's kind of like, and, and of course uh, there's also newtist. Uh, which, which is, uh, I think, coined by uh, Ethan Kosak. Uh, but, uh, you know, neutler, nutist sounds good. Neuter doesn't sound good at all. So I don't think that one's going to work. Neutler is kind of endearing. And, and immediately I'm at, like, so you look for newts. Nutist, on the other hand, I have a dirty mind. So I, I'm I feel like that's pretty cheeky, too. Yeah. Ah, cheeky. Nice one. Yeah. Neutler sounds... It sounds kind of old, old school, doesn't it? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got kind of a, I like a it. different vibe to it. Yeah, it sounds like something that, just like Muggles that I should have heard in Harry Potter. Yeah, awesome. I like it. I, I also these alternative terms are kind of cool. It's kind of cool to bounce them around. I'm not sure if I'll ever refer to myself as a neutler, but I might go noodling or newting or something. <laughs> it's hard to target them too. They're they're not a main target generally, not for us in in the U.S. Well, at least not not in the central United States with one species. Yeah, and uh, kind of this is kind of related too. I also I got uh, a message on Instagram from uh, uh, Nathan Nathan Chan. I think I have that right. Uh, and and Nathan he's, he talked about Hawaiian names for some some of the critters we like. For example, turtles. Yeah, uh, the, you know, which are mm-hmm. which are called. Uh, I'll get this right. Uh, Honu, Honu, H O N U, Honu, which I had never heard of, but that that sounds pretty cool. I could I could see myself adopting the the Honu thing, and yeah. then uh, lizard lizard is uh, Mo O. 
uh, yep. which is also kind of cool. You got so, it right. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a slight difference, but it's it's Honu, like not new, like a new bag or a new coat, but new like Mu. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm doing. <laughs> you got it. Never though. been to Hawaii. Yeah. They'd know what you were talking about if you were there. They would know I was talking about the turtle and not some you know, oh, yeah. disreputable got, cow. They've got road signs and, and, and beach signs everywhere. It's it's pretty oh, cool. Oh, really? I went there for my, my, my wife's dad is Japanese Hawaiian, and she's been there a bunch of times. We went there for our honeymoon, um, and we went to Turtle Beach on the island of Oahu. There's three basic geographic areas on the planet where green sea turtles will sun themselves on the beach regularly. Um Hawaii, Galapagos, and I think there's an island off of Australia. Those are the three populations we know of. But yeah, there's a place on Oahu called uh, Turtle Beach. And uh, you can go there on a good day and see a dozen huge green sea turtles actually sunning themselves on the beach. They haul out every day. The old added or knowledge of turtles only come on the beach to, to lay eggs is, is not accurate. Interesting. So you went and saw the whole new. I did. Yeah, I, I got to swim with a few of them. Um, I accidentally bumped into one. I was uh, snorkeling, and you've been snorkeling in uh, the Yucatan with me for sea turtles, and yeah. you're looking for sea turtles, but uh, I wasn't looking for sea turtles. I was actually looking for moray eels. So I was looking straight down, and I was only in about a foot of water, and my head hit what I thought was coral or a rock. It really hurt. And I looked, I have it on video. I've got it on a GoPro. And I looked up and there's a table-sized green sea turtle that was eating. Uh, and I, I literally swam right into him. And he didn't care. He didn't swim away or act. He was it's probably, I'm probably not the first tourist that bumped into him. But uh, wow. that was a pretty cool experience. But um, yeah, Turtle Beach is on Oahu. It's a very cool. popular place. Well, did you see any mo'o while you were there too? I did. Um there's a lot of introduced brown onoles and day geckos. There's a couple of species of day gecko. Okay. I didn't. I looked for chameleons. I didn't find any. Um, but yeah, I saw gold dust day geckos and um, peacock day geckos. You can find dart frogs too, if I'm not wrong. I right? found I found dart frogs as well. Yeah. Oh man, I wish I knew what the Hawaiian name for those was too. <sighs> It's it escapes me. Sorry, it's on Dart Frog forums. You could Google it. It's it's pretty oh, easy to find. Okay. But they do have a term for them. Okay. There's unfortunately there's cane toads out there too. So oh. they have a, they oh. have a word for frog. Hmm. So they need to have a cane toad should have their own name because they're they're so. Um, and they might. They might. They've been there for so long. They've been there since I think the 30s. Oh. Hmm. Interesting. Sorry. Getting off track oh. on Hawaiian herping. It's a whole other <laughs> podcast, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, maybe we'll save that for the next when we actually do a podcast from Hawaii uh, somewhere in the future. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. So, uh, one of the, uh, besides alternate terms, one of the other things that I came up with this list, people sent me all kinds of what interesting, what I call shorthand phrases. And it's, it's just a shorter way of saying something. Uh, the one that comes up, that came up many times, and many people sent this to me, we all use it, is the term crote, which, of course, is short for crotalus or crotalus or crotalus, however you, you choose to say it. And I, I think I say, I say crotalus. I don't know what you guys say. I say crotalus. 
Okay. Um, but I, I, I was corrected once by someone that I consider better at Latin and, and Greek than me. I think it was Jeremiah Easter. He said Crotalus. And I was like, what? What did you just say? He's like, it's Crotalus. <laughs> I was like, you mean like talus slopes? And he's like, talus slopes. I was like, okay, is that really where okay. it comes from? And I, I, it's not related, but it may be. But um, yeah, no, I don't I think crotalus. And most people I talk to say crotalus, but I've heard, yeah, crotalus, and I've heard crotalus. It reminds me of something. I don't, you know, this is something that just came to my mind of uh, box turtle, the box turtle genus, which we don't we don't shorten it or anything. There's no slang for it, but it's uh, most of us pronounce it terrapine or terrapini, and terrapina. Uh, I. Or terrapina or whatever. Oh, and, of course, that, that term is, the root from that is not Latin or Greek. It's uh, Algonquin. It's Native American for mm -hmm. terrapin. That's yeah. where the term terrapin comes from. You know, I really dislike these inserts, but I feel they are necessary in some circumstances, like network interrupts, and in this case, clarity. Okay, so the word terrapin is not exactly a Native American term. It's a bit more complicated. Not long after this interview, I did some deeper research on the word terrapin for a blog post that I wrote about diamondback terrapins, Malaclummy's terrapin. And terrapini, well, that's how I say it, is caught up in that. So the word terrapin derives from the Southern Algonquin language group, and more specifically, the long-extinct Powhatan tongue which was spoken along coastal Virginia, and which has given us some other awesome words as well, like hickory and opossum and raccoon. Really. But terrapin is derived from the word torope. And, well, that's my pronunciation of the word. And as usual, Europeans put their own spin on native words, and over time, torope became terrapin, which was apparently in use for at least a century before 1820, which is when Blasius Merum erected the genus Terrapini. And Merum, like so many other naturalists, did not bother to explain why he did so. Anyway, Merum tossed a number of different turtle species into Terrapini, including musk turtles and box turtles, and then other workers used that genus for turtles across the world that were considered intermediate between terrestrial tortoises and aquatic turtles. So it appears that Terrapin is a modified form of a Powhatan word, but it did give us terrapini. Maybe. I mean, not surprisingly, there's some reason to dispute that, but this insert is already too long. And if you want more on this, go to my terrapin blog post at fieldherping.org, and there's some additional links to material on this subject. And I was at some conference, and somebody was discussing box turtles, and they referred to the genus as terrapini. And, terrapini. and I thought, what, what is he talking about? Ter oh, okay. But that didn't seem right to me, because if you're taking something from terrapin, it ought to sound fairly close to terrapin, right? Like, yeah. But anyway, I just thought that was, uh, it was an, an interesting sidebar. But uh, so, of course, Crote, there's just a bunch of rattlesnakes that have their own shorthand, too. And mm -hmm. And uh, Andy, you have out your way, you have uh, the Northern Pacific rattlesnakes and Norpak. Norpak. And uh, you go south and you've got the Southern Pacifics, which people call Sopaks. Or Hellerai. Or Hellerai. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's sort of shorthand. And then, of course, speckled rattlesnakes get called specks. Yeah. In our neck of the woods, we have Saugas, which is short for Massasauga. And, 
and so forth. On and on it goes, and nobody ever says Crotalus atrox or uh, Western diamondback rattlesnakes. Everybody, pretty much everybody, just calls them atrox. Yep. It's one of those universal, it's kind of like a subak for uh, Bogertophus subocularis, the transpecos rattlesnake. Nobody ever says Bogertophus subocularis. Everybody calls them a subak. Yeah, right. So there's there's. A I have of heard one that we didn't have on the list. Now that you bring that up, uh, bogey. Ah, I've heard bogey before. Which which could be not as common as subak, but I have heard bogey yeah. before. And that could also be the uh, Bogertophus rosalia. Rosalia. See, see, a lot of this uh, we 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 chat about this earlier off air. It, a lot of this when you're using the scientific name to give it a short or a nickname, a lot of it is determined by Western interpretation of scientific names because a lot of them are Latin or Greek. There's newer ones that are, there's a lot of newer names of Asian from, from China and, and things like that and some yeah. Latin and some uh, Spanish. And like you mentioned, Terrapin or Terrapena or whatever it is for a long one, but who knows if the nicknames we're even making up or are <laughs> pronounced correctly. Yeah, so sometimes. Uh, but yeah, it's you said you said, what did you say for Bogertophus Rosalia? Rosalia. Rosalia. See, I said Rosalia. So yeah. and you're, you're both right. right. One of you is <laughs> one of us is right, maybe. But um, yeah, it's I don't know if it's out of convenience or just to make it faster, but to communicate to each other when we're not from the same area, when we say something like this, most of the time another herper knows exactly what we're talking about. It speaks to an extreme familiarity though. Right. Well, because well, most of these that we're talking about are either a, a shortening of a common name or a combination of a common name, like Norpac, Northern Pacific, but like Subok is short for Subocularis. So it's just funny how we've decided what was most convenient for us in a conversation. Yeah. And which one you like better. Right. Well, what's faster in a uh, drive-by, multi-car, road cruising situation? I found a Trans-Pecos rat snake, or I found a sub Yeah, and you would be right no matter what. You're correct either yeah. way, but um, I need to get back to finding snakes, and you <laughs> just wasted three syllables of my time. <laughs> okay. So for you, it's a matter of convenience. I think a lot of this list is a matter of convenience. Okay. Whether it's because it was to type less letters in a forum or to say less syllables, I think that's why we make shorthand and acronym or cliff notes, right? This is like all Herper's cliff notes. What do you think about that, Justin? I think I think that it's very esoteric. We have a lot of familiarity, and it almost becomes with any hobby that you get really into that there's a lexicon that if you're not in that group, you don't you're an outsider. And that's, uh, I think we became, we become immune to, to it being involved for so long, but people who come in new, this is stuff that's a learning curve that they have to pick up. Yeah. So it's kind of like you're joining a club, right? And sort of, yeah. to show that you're in the club and to participate in the club, so to speak, you have to uh, speak shorthand. You want to be a brother or a sister in the club. You have to speak the shorthand, do the, the special lingo. Know the secret handshake, right? right. Uh, know the secret name, whatever it is. So maybe right. there's something of that to it too. It's a 
you use those things because you you feel like you belong. I think that's a part of it. I definitely you when when each of you was growing up and you were doing this for fun on your own, and then you ran into a, a group of people that did it, and they said a term you'd never heard of. Once they described that term, you're like, oh. Well, I've always done that. I just never called it that. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that are imposing roadblocks to new members of the group, especially with social media. That's a whole other conversation. But, you know, when people come in and they don't speak the language, they don't talk the talk, but they do walk the walk. I I think that's the value of this conversation is like, these are all regional terms that someone came up with along the way to make things easier and faster. But there is a universal language that we kind of speak to each other and it, it crosses boundaries, you know, even bilingual boundaries. Yeah. That, that stuff fascinates me. I love, I love learning new things. And so when I say a term and someone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa what, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, well, Norpak, that's a Northern Pacific rattlesnake. It's Crotalus oregonus oregonus. And they're like, oh, well, the, I never these, heard of that before. These guys are also the the ones that get these these nicknames, if you will, are more commonly found. There's quite a few rattlesnakes out there that don't do not have a name like this, so or, or any kind of snake for that matter. So I, I would think, challenge. I think it to speaks to regional, and and you have you're on to the commonality of it. But there's part of some of these are big targets. They may not be commonly found, but well, like the long tail rattlesnakes, we don't have little pet names for them. Uh, I, I mean, I've heard I've heard stegies. So you you take only because the... nobody can say that name. <laughs> <laughs> you can spell it out, but you can't. That say may it. be true, but I think that there is a regionality to some of these where people in that region call them something. Oh, that's for sure. We yeah. call them something else. I you know yeah. Norpax cover a big range and we call them norpacks but non-herpers call them timber rattlesnakes or highland rattlesnakes or some people call them diamondbacks and that that blend that starts to bleed into common names and what's right and what's wrong but i'll I'll bet you there's a a funny herp term for just about every species if you ask the right person but we're hitting on ones that most of us are familiar with these are pretty common yeah. The iconic ones like Eastern iconic. Diamondback rattlesnake, EDB. right? Yeah, nobody, nobody says Eastern Diamondback rattlesnake. They say Diamondback or EDB or EDB or Adamantium. Yeah. yeah, everybody's got a little shorthand for it. Or, like I said, Atrox or you know, things like that. So, and it crosses over into. It seems to be the snakes are the ones that that have the majority of them. But there's a a few other things like scallops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like one of the largest groups of lizards They're that we pretty look diverse. For. <laughs> yeah. Uh Phryno or Phrynosoma. Uh um, horny toad. Yeah. There's there's a big group of those, right? Yeah. So that we could sort of get on into that. Uh it seems like a, a segue too to the other thing that people do, and that's give them nicknames. Mm-hmm. Uh and of course my favorite or the one that always comes up first to me is you know, the hellbender, which is, in itself is an interesting name, but a lot of people call them snot otters uh, because they're, you know, they're just, they're just slimy. And it's squishy. so great. It is great. And they're otter-like in, in their aquaticness. So it's a pretty good name. I wonder if snot otter had any influence on snot lizard because I originally heard gummy lizard. 
And the person that I heard that from again was, was Jeremiah Easter and Josh Wallace, but that's referring to any salamander and we're in a salamander heavy region, but um, jelly or gummy lizard. And I like snot lizard the best, but I, I, I kind of wondered which came first, snot otter or snot lizard. Regional variations on a theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I've heard jelly lizard and gummy lizard and things like that. Heard those for a very, very long time. Uh, and perhaps uh, I think those things become more popular when the internet comes along and, you know, uh, field herb forum and Facebook and things like that. And people can share those and then romanticize it. Yeah. But where their origin lies, I don't know. Uh, I assume they predate the internet. For sure. Uh, like you say, it's a regional affectation. Um, one of the things that, and, and this gets into it again, uh, uh, who, who coins things, uh, I made a flippant remark about racers one time, a a blue racer that I caught and I called it a prairie mamba. It was just one of those, you know, stupid things that I say all the time. And, and, and now I hear other people using it too. And it's just sort of, it's really spread. (laughs) Yeah. And I really didn't intend to, to sort of say, I shall now invent a new term for racers or for blue racers anyway. And, you know, it's funny how that just kind of happened. And, you know, of course, blue racers really aren't much like mambas and, you know, they won't kill you or anything. But uh, just that particular day, it just sort of reminded me of a mamba being up in a tree and up in a bush and uh, biting us all get out and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of biological cemetery. I was with you that you were the first person I ever heard say it. We were uh, we were at that Sand Hill private secret spot that a lot of people have been to. Where yeah, it's not very secret or private. Cogno but... snakes and uh, <laughs> you'd mentioned yeah. prairie mamba, and then I started calling them that over here, referring to Western yellow-bellied racers. And then I heard yeah. someone that wasn't with us in Illinois or in Missouri say it, and I was like, "What? Where, where'd you hear that?" They're like, "Oh, I don't know. I heard it from somebody." But they're you know. They periscope, they're super visual, and they're uh, they're bitey. Yeah. And they're fast. Which leads me to the next one, which uh, coach whips and whip snakes, similar to racers, uh, in the genus uh, Masticophis. And what, what do herpers call those? Nasticophis. Nasticophis, yeah. And that's, a, I think, another time where you talk about who said it first, who gets credit. Because I had never heard anyone else refer to them. As soon as I knew they were Masticophis and I saw one, I called it Nasticophis. I had never heard anyone else. Most of us have that. I thought I had invented that. I was so happy and proud. And then I heard someone else say it. And I'm like, well, I never put that out on the internet. How did you come up with that? And they're like, well, that's what they're called. Like, No. So it's it's like convergent convergent, uh, uh, origin, you know. Right. Like everybody had the same logical conclusion that yeah. <laughs> it fit, it fit, it was easy yeah. and it fit. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very, it's, it's very funny, right? It's mast, masticophis. And then you just change it to nasticophis and it, there's no lie there. No. <laughs> you know, these things will bite your face off if you let them. Uh, or some of them will anyway. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's very uh, pleasing. It's a very pleasing nickname because it's just perfect. It's like uh, the the term prairie rooter for hognose snakes, which I also like. I like, the, I like to throw that one around, too, just because it's something different to say, right? Yeah. Right. It's not really shorthand, but yeah, we're going out for prairie rooters. Yeah. <laughs> That's not my favorite. Yeah. 
And of course, Justin, I think maybe your favorite is has a, a term for uh, collared lizards. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, Thomas Say, and uh, I think it was a Clifford Pope book from whenever that was, a field guide that I've had for a long time. And in a note in there, Pope mentions Thomas Say called them glade bitches, the uh, collared lizards. And I, I don't know why or how that translates over the years, uh, but I thought it was hilarious. And, of course, the uh, bull snake is named after the naturalist Thomas Say. So he had, he'd had he written and uh, lots of things, different observations about different reptiles. But that one, calling them glade bitches, is, is the term that I, I used because I thought it was hilarious when I first read it. And that one can be coined to Thomas Say according to Clifford Pope, who I think is reputable. Yeah, but we don't know why he called him that. I have no idea. I don't know if that translates to something different from that time. I, I don't know. I had heard the term glade boomers originally, too, which was yeah. similar. Mountain boomer. And it's mountain the same, boomer, yeah. It's the same lizards. Yeah, I remember Justin telling, saying glade bitches in front of me the first time. And I was like, what? And he's like, Eastern Callward lizards. We're going after glade bitches. And I was like, yeah. Oh, man, I can't wait to find a glade bitch. <laughs> and then he was like, no, 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 no. You can't say it like that. We're stop, just going after glade bitches. Bitch, right? I was like, sorry, <laughs> sorry. My bad. Yeah. That's that. I had never heard that until I heard Justin say it like last year, maybe, or this year. I'm not sure. So that was, I, that I was found the new. publication at one point because people were calling me out on it. And I found the publication and put it on Facebook at some point. And lots of people read it and said, wow, it's really out there. I was like, it's really out there. It's published that way. Yeah. Well, you brought it back. Yeah. After 200 years, you brought it back. <laughs> nice. And, uh, I know Andy calls big lizards Godzilla, which is, that seems like a pretty useful term, right? It Uh, was originally termed for a a really big individual southern alligator lizard that me and Josh Wallace and Mac, uh, Chris McDonald, found in Northern California. It was uh, a stumpy tail, so it had lost its tail, but we just assumed if this thing had original tail, it would have been the world record male southern alligator lizard and he was really mean and he latched onto my thumb and we were all having a laugh but i was kind of laughing and yelling at the same time and i think josh might have called it godzilla first and then from that point forward any lizard of any genus that we see that's like larger than average you know the biggest one of the day or or the meanest one of the day we would just call oh this is godzilla so um we've even used that term towards uh dicamps or uh, giant salamanders. The biggest one you see is Godzilla. So here we've got uh, layers of, of names. Layers of shorthand phrases and yeah. nicknames. Dicamps being short for dicamptodon. Yeah. And of course, uh, so that's just, you know, even people come up in their, their own little groups or little gang, Herper gangs come up with these interesting names. And I'm sure there are hundreds of other examples out there as well. Well, one, I think we haven't really touched on our, our acronyms, and of course there are a number of those. We talked about EDB, which is for the Eastern Diamondback Rattlesnake, but probably the most common ones that we know of are DOR and AOR, which are dead on road and alive on road. And uh, everybody kind of knows what those are, I think. Uh, those are very fairly commonly used, right? No, those are, yeah, those are used all the time. Yep. Field notes. Field reports, 
and now just in conversation when you're especially if you're driving a road with friends in multiple cars you stop and check in with what everyone's found and you say dor or not yeah that's been around for quite a while but uh, i think a relatively new term is sfd which is short for snake fungal disease snake fungal disease yeah which you know is something we're all we're all having to deal with we're all having to witness uh, uh, in various places across the country so that's another new one but i think a lot of people are familiar with sfd as a shorthand yep uh, we there's just a whole list of these things right um, bd it's in that same class it's a disease and has that negative connotation yeah Attracting or salamanders, them. right? Yeah. And there's things like TMTC, which I don't see much anymore, which is too many to count, right? I, I've actually put that in field notes before with, to- field with, notes. Regard to yeah. toad, with toads or frogs uh, in breeding season. You know, you could take a picture and get hundreds of eye shines at night when they're all calling. So in my notes, I would just yeah. put a pool of tadpoles. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one too. Yeah. We don't see it used as much, I think, as we used to, but it's, it's still around. And probably the one that's most specific to herping, <laughs> it doesn't come out of, you know, the scientific realm or, or anything like that, is L-E-C-H. And you can pronounce <laughs> it as, <laughs> as lech or lech. And that stands for lame East Coast herper. Yeah. And uh, now this comes out of the the old field herp forum days, probably back in the early aughts and maybe the late nineties. I think early aughts. Early aughts, yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, this term was uh, used. First of all, it was kind of first used as a joke. I think. I think so too. Like a a, a rib jab. I think it was like friendly banter originally. Yeah, and some people originally, tried, <laughs> yes. Well, some people like made it super negative, and then other people wore it. You know what I mean? Like owned it. Yeah, I, yeah. I think uh, the first time I came to Snake Road with you guys, I'm from the West Coast, and I can't remember. I think it was you, Justin, that said like with how good of a trip I had, I was an honorary lek. Yeah, I was going to let you in. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, and my, of course, my take on the whole lech or lech thing is that a le- it's like, well, who is, who does that mean? Does that mean people in Florida? Does it mean people in Massachusetts? We're talking lame East Coast herper. And my take on it is that anybody east of the Rocky Mountains is a lame yeah. East Coast herper. <laughs> right. Because that was how, I mean, I was thinking of it, not using it negatively, but it was anyone from like the Midwest over and then it became... Rockies over because anyone west of the Rockies is a Westerner, and then that you know is it? Do you use the Rocky Mountains to consider east and west, or do you use the Mississippi? <laughs> Those clicks yeah. are no fun, though. Yeah, they gave us some fun terms. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of fun when you're like razzing people, but but some there's always a few people that take it too far and want to, of course, make it derogatory. And sure, and I'm going to go off on a tangent with that. We're talking about derogatory terms. And the one I really never liked was trash snake. I still don't like it. I hate it. And I see you guys throw that around sometimes. Not as much as I used to, but that was always, you know, well, hey, look, it's uh, here's this really cool diamondback water snake. Here's a photo of me holding it. And then somebody inevitably would say, why are you messing around with those trash snakes? 
It's not a king yeah. snake or a rattler or whatever. It's a trash snake. And yeah, I just used to hate that term. Guys that set up board lines trying to find kings or tricolors or candy canes or whatever you want to call them, and then they get nothing but racers. And yeah, trash snakes. I'm over here like I don't get to see racers every day. That's not. A, I, I would go to Florida and specifically look for an Everglades racer. Like that's awesome. Sure. That's a cool snake. But yeah, trash snakes or or trash species is like. Well, then what are you doing? Why are you here? You're not here for everything and, and the enjoyment. You're here for one specific target. That's That sounds yeah. really boring. Yeah. I thought that was one of those terms that kind of bounced back on the people that used it. Yeah, I think so too. Although, it, you know, I, I get it. You can kind of joke. You can use it as a joke once or twice, but it's not something you can take seriously or a term you would use as anything other than a joke. I think that's it's it's kind of frowned upon. Yeah, I've I've definitely used it as a joke, tongue in cheek, complete opposite. You know, when we're out in the middle of nowhere looking for a highly coveted species and we're finding a lot of cool stuff, you know, you get a cantile in Mexico where they're not commonly found and you th- you want to take photos with your friends and someone sees you with a bag and they're like, Oh, what's in the bag? And you're like, Oh, nothing, just this trash species. I just thought you might want to see it. Like yeah. completely sarcastic. That's the only time I've ever used it yeah i think we we all kind of get that that use of it but uh also when we go over to terms that are you know positive and negative connotations to them and the one that always comes to mind is the term flip yeah flipping or flipping tin for that matter uh we don't actually flip things right it sounds like you know you something is sailing up in the air yeah (laughs) Yeah, yeet. Yeah, we don't yeet anything. <laughs> we we lift it up and carefully put it right back where it was. Yeah, and uh, you know, of course, people are always like, ah, you know, I don't like using that term. And um, I got a, an an email from uh, uh, Lauren Levo out in uh, Colorado, and she she said that she she prefers the term turning. She turns, you know, she turns things over. She li- she lifts things up, and her mind is like, well, if I when I'm looking at an object that I might turn, I have to consider if I can properly return it. Right. So it's kind of a, Uh Mm. so she says, you know, flipping is a term that has, you know, an implication there that you have to some somehow restore it to the original condition. So, so she kind of prefers the term turning. And of course I've used the term lifting because we don't actually flip things. Flipping is actually a flippant remark. Right. So, uh, we we're actually lifting things and looking onto them usually. Uh, so lifting, turning, flipping, six of one, half dozen of the other. Well, I don't know. Lauren makes really good points because in the community, you see occasionally people complaining when they go to their favorite site and everything is flipped over and not returned. Right. That is true. I call it flipping. I I, I yeah. flip rocks. I flip logs. I flip boards. I flip AC, but I return all of it. But that's just because that's the word that was used in front of me, and it it caught on. But turning makes a lot more sense. It's a more positive word in our community in terms of how often do we see someone that's like, I went to my favorite Z spot, and all of the rocks were flipped over, and you've got this patch of dead grass, and then this pale rock flipped over that wasn't put back in and now nobody can find an animal there for for months because someone disrespected the site so 
turning makes more sense. Yeah, and uh, just a side note, when you say Z, we're talking about Zonata, right? Yes, sir. Sorry. Uh, more shorthand for Mountain shorthand and, oh, and he said AC as well, which, ah. which which we know as artificial cover or, to the muggles, littering on purpose. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you see uh, plywood uh, strewn across a field or trash, you know, <laughs> trash, it's like, oh, yeah, we start rubbing our hands together and, and cackling because uh, we know it could be good. But everybody else looks at that as an eyesore, and of course, we think it's an eyesore too. But we don't. We we wanted to please See, leave. The funny thing there. about this whole conversation, this whole topic, is I just ranted really quickly and used several terms, but you guys knew exactly what I was saying. Yeah. But you did describe it for the audience that might not know. So I smell what you're stepping in. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole flipping. I mean, you know. If, you're working with somebody and, and there's a field and there's like plywood in the field, right? There's 10 pieces of 10 boards and you're, you're, you're lifting some and you, your partner's lifting some and you say, Hey, did you flip that one? Yeah. Well, no, well, I'm going to flip it. Right. So like we say, we don't actually, that thing isn't going in the air. It's just being lifted on one end or whatever to look underneath it. So, so it's sort of that lazy casual word that everybody knows, but it just sounds horrible. Yeah, I I have a friend who hikes in Arizona all the time, and he finds all kinds of cool stuff. But he's not even trying to; he's a muggle, and he'll send me pictures and ask me what it, you know what they are, uh, whatever it is that he's seeing. And when he's seen a tin site, when I've posted pictures of tin sites, he said, "Do you litter on purpose just to find snakes?" <laughs> I said, "No, no, we put AC out." And he says, "AC." I said, "Artificial cover." And he goes, "It looks like litter." So to some people, that's their take on it. And there you go. You used the term tin site. Yes. Right. Which yeah. we, we need to explain too, because tin we, with people, any kind of metal is, is tin to us. Yes. I mean, right. back in the, in the olden days, you know, we had roofing material made of, you know, some kind of tin alloy. Uh, that's what that referred to, but it's sort of carried forward probably a hundred years or more. Herpers have been flipping tin or going to tin sites, even though. Yeah. They're not, you know, now they're zinc, you know, or, well, or treated could, metal or whatever. Be a car hood Convenient. or refrigerator yeah. door. Tin site uh, is easier than car door site or road sign site or. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Also people, you know, besides tin, which we all love dearly because, because the thermal qualities of tin lead animals to spend time underneath them and soak up, soak up heat. But uh, there's also the, the, what they call board lines which are, you know, usually some kind of plywood people have laid out in order to uh, attract herbs. So somebody will have an open field and they'll put a bunch of boards in strategic locations, maybe on the edge of the woods where the woods turn into fields or something like that, where, you know, good old um, transition zones. And, and even though they're not in maybe necessarily in a straight line, we still call them board lines, right? So it's just a, right. like a trot line, you know, same thing. You know, we put a trot line out for catfish. It's just your spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think it's just interesting the way uh, these are the sorts of things that I, I really like. The ones that are really a, a, a appropriate to herping and, and peculiar to herping and not really much else. You know, twitchers don't have board lines. Yeah, I guess not. They might. We just don't know what they call them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not in that world very much. But I wanted to bring up a couple other things that are also peculiar to herping and one of those is the obvious road cruising and the question i have is how did it become road cruising 
of course, I always want to know who coined these things, but why is it road cruising and not herp driving or road looking or, you know, road herping or something like that? Why is it road cruising? Who who decided that? And it doesn't seem like people have very many variants for that. No, I think that's just what, that's solidly what it's called. Road cruising or just cruising. I don't have it on any authority. This was just an idea I had when I had when I asked myself the same conversation. I'm wondering if there's any connection to when we invariably get pulled over while road cruising and the police officer asks us what we're doing and mm-hmm. law enforcement says, what are you doing out here? I think the, the like safest answer is just out for a cruise or just cruising, just night cruising, enjoying the stars, driving. I, I, for me, that a connection there that could exist, but otherwise, I don't know. Because I've heard road hunting, road spotting, searching, but the most common, I think we can all agree, is cruising or road cruising. Yeah. So if I say, yeah, I was out last night, I cruised up an Atrox. Uh, I've just told you that I, I found a Western Diamondback rattlesnake while driving in my car. Yep. So it is, it is a bit of a shorthand there too, right? Cruised up. Or, you know, related to that is walked up or hiked up, which people also use. But yeah, I, I just, I would give much to know who coined the term road cruising. And I know it was something that was used uh, when I was a kid back in the, you know, in the mid seventies, people were already using that. And of course, I think Carl Caulfield probably used that in his books as well. So, but it'd be interesting to know who exactly came up with that term. You know, when I was a kid, I I was on a family trip or something and a family member who's not a herper said something along the lines of let's go on a cruise and look for wildlife. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, we're going to drive down the road and spot animals from the roadway. I'm not sure that it's exclusively a herper's term globally. I think that it's definitely most commonly used amongst us to each other, but you can go drive on the countryside and go cruising for wildlife. Well, I think it's one of one of those things that always remains a mystery as to as to who came up with it. But there's a related term too uh, that pe- people use. They they say, "Hey, yeah, uh, I was out. What what'd you do last weekend? Well, I went on a rocket run." Yep. When we we talk about a rocket run, we're talking about somebody who got in their car and drove somewhere. They, perhaps they have the weekend off. They have Saturday and Sunday available. So they get in their car on Friday and they drive like a maniac and arrive at some destination on Saturday morning and they go out and they, they harp that, you know, wherever it is they're, they're at. And then they uh, spend a couple of days in that area. And then they Sunday afternoon, it's time to drive back and they uh, spend all Sunday night driving back and they have to go yeah. to work on Monday morning. And to me, that that's sort of the, the framework for the term rocket run, right? Uh, I yeah. made a really quick trip somewhere and then came right back. Yeah, I I agree. I've always associated that with you did a trip to a location that normally would be considered like a three or four or five day weekend. And you did it in a day or two. Like you're driving really, really far. Yes, far and focused. Part of a day for one thing or or one spot. But normally you'd like to... Um, you know, I make me personally, I make a rocket run to the gorge a couple times a year. That's where we can, in Washington, we can find Z's, uh, Zanata. So California mountain king snakes, uh, in one direction, it's about a four and a half or five hour drive. So I would like to leave on a Friday 
and spend the weekend and come back Sunday night. But a rocket run is I wake up at 4 a.m. Saturday to get to the best rocks by 9 a.m., right, as they start to warm up. And I leave at 5 or 6 to get home by 10 or 11 that night. That's the difference for me between a weekend trip and a rocket run. Gotcha. But I think we all, without it being explained in this community, when you say that, we all may have our own variation on it, but we totally get it. We get what that means. Without it need to be explained because we've done it. Everybody's kind of said, okay, you know, uh, it's lined up where I've got this two days open and I, and I'm, and this is a good time for this animal to be active in this area. And I'm going to hit it and, you know, sleep very little and drive a lot. And, uh, yeah. And, and so to us that I think that makes sense when I first heard it, it made sense to me. I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think the craziest rocket run I ever did. And I've actually done it twice is driving out to West Texas which is an 18-hour drive, and I stopped in Walmart in Chickasaw, Oklahoma, and grabbed a two-hour nap, and I got up and finished the drive. And then I was out there for, I think, three days. Maybe it was three days, I believe. And then I drove back. So yeah. I would, the amount of time I actually spent doing something out there was not much more than the actual drive time. You know, 36 hours of drive time, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> basically, uh to, to get out to West Texas, which is, it's kind of nuts, but that's kind of how, that's kind of how we roll sometimes. It's not a, a firm cement guideline, but I think that's the best guideline of a, if we had to put a definition to rocket run is if you spend more time going there and coming back than you were actually there doing the activity, it's definitely a rocket run. If it's equal yeah. or greater for your commute, you did 36 hours of, of driving to get there and back. How much time did you actually spend doing the activity? Not counting sleeping and eating and resting. Uh, It's definitely a rocket run. (laughs) And how many of us have done that just to meet up with someone who's what you would say in range? You'll go really far just to help them or show them something and then turn around and go home that same day maybe. I do it every October. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Every October I drive down to Southern Illinois and, and hang out with people coming from all over the country and then drive back home. So, yeah. 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 I also got a note. I got a note on related to road cruising type activities is I got a note from uh, Josh Holbrook. I said, you know, give me some jargon, will you? And he, he sent me one called mock block. I'm like mock block. What's that? And uh, it, this is when uh, uh, another car moves a snake off the road ahead of a car behind them. and josh says long story short i came up with mock block uh that one night when i moved a giant cottonmouth out of the road which was in front of another car that had been harassing snakes so (laughs) that's very situational but i like that you know yeah getting mock blocked so (laughs) uh, we won't go go that one too deep but uh uh, at any rate, that was that was kind of a funny term uh, from Josh. And uh, so uh, there's a couple other terms that I think are, are colloquialisms, whatever you want. One of the ones that I, I like a lot and, and many people are familiar with is the term tasty burger. Fits right in for me with Rocket Run. Tim Mr. Mr. Rocket Run himself. If there yeah. ever was somebody who's done a Rocket Run, it's Tim. He's a master. So anybody that's hurt with Tim has heard him refer to some... Uh, choice 
specimen or species as a tasty burger, which, and, and of course, a lot of people use that now, right? Oh, yeah. Sure. I hear him say it mostly with lifers, which is always fun to get a lifer around Tim. Um, cause he's got an impressive life. Tasty list. burger. So he'll, yeah. that's when you know he's, he's like excited for it when he says that's a tasty burger. And of course, this leads to an interesting derivation. I, you know, I got a note from Dan Rosenberg, and I, I, I know what Dan is talking about. He, he sent me this note. And I knew, I knew what he was talking about immediately. Is he has the uh, he uses the term "tasty boiga" <laughs> for snakes in the genus uh, boiga, b o i g a, which are the the cat snakes, if you will. Uh, cool. so he uses the term "tasty boiga," and of course, Dan's a clever fellow, and he comes up with some. Yeah, interesting terms, and I I enjoyed using that one uh, a couple of times when I went to Asia. You know, a yeah, I definitely heard Dan drop that one when we were in Vietnam and photographing uh, a a boiga. Yeah, and I thought he said tasty burger at first. I thought he because Dan has a little bit of a a little bit of an accent just because he's yeah. lived all over the place. But when he said it, I looked at him. And I was like, Whoa. I kind of chuckled because I thought I heard it right, and then he said it again. I was like. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Like those terms a lot. Uh, another one that gets thrown around a bit is white whale. Sure, absolutely. Tell us, tell us what you guys think that means. I always say white whale is the snake that, or not just snake. I shouldn't say that. The species that you're focused on that eludes you. That maybe you've done multiple trips and lots of research and lots of trying and hours in the field for it, and you end up empty-handed. So it's a white yeah. whale. It's the one you can't get. It's a more personal term for me. Uh, my white whale is not everybody else's white whale necessarily. It's not a, it has very little connection to an animal's commonality or rarity. It's more about the number of times and the number of effort you've, the amount of effort you've invested into finding it and failed before you find it. Of course, uh, the root origin of this term is really is is mo- Moby you know, the novel Moby Dick, right? Because uh, the white whale is Captain Ahab's obsession, which drives him to his utter doom. Right. So, you know, what are the herbs that have driven you towards your utter doom? <laughs> you <know. laughs> Maybe your marriage is shaky because you can't get your white whale. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and and once you find it, it's not your white whale anymore. You've gotten not a herper term, but a, another term. You've gotten that monkey off your back, right? Yeah. Ringneck, ringneck snakes in Washington State. I had found that species everywhere else they occur every, on my first attempt. And they're not considered the hardest snake in Washington. But for some reason, I would go to look for them and miss one by five minutes. I'd be walking up a trail and this group of hikers or birders would be like, oh, we just found this cool gray snake with an orange neck. And I'd go, where? And they'd go about 100 yards up the trail. And I'd go running and there'd be a snake path in the sand and it's gone. And I would find a mountain king snake that day, which is considered harder here. But uh, it took me too many trips to find one. I was getting made fun of by other Washington State herpers. Like, haha, Andy can't find a ring neck. (laughs) That was my white whale for a long time. And then once I found one, I kind of wrote it off. Like, I'm not going to purposely look for the, for those snakes ever again. I love finding them, but they'll probably turn up randomly every time I'm out in their range now. But And be bycatch. White whale. Right. 
they were bycatch exactly they're bycatch for everyone else and they were a target for me yeah i i tr- i used to use that term and then i started to feel bad about it uh i felt like using the word bycatch lessened the coolness of of something else like if you're if you're out looking for salamanders and you find a spotted but you really wanted a marbled you'd say oh i just keep finding these spotted they're bycatch but actually they're super cool so i started feeling like it was really lessening how cool things are to say that true it's a sort of me using the term rfc which is regular faunistic component you know like the the american toad cricket frogs <laughs> the cricket frogs they're all rfcs and yeah it's it's not quite trash snake type level but it's yeah you don't want I to, agree you know. there is there is a negative twist to it though because i think bycatch comes from commercial fishing yeah I, I I could be wrong on that, but I feel like that's when they pull up their nets and it's not full of tuna. It's got a bunch of bycatch things that they kick off the boat. Tasty dolphins yeah. or sea turtles. Right. Uh, it, it, there's right. kind of a twist. It, it was it was not your intended find and therefore there's no appreciation <laughs> for it. But we have appreciation for most of our bycatch. I like RFC better. You know, it's I think I stole that from birders. I've heard birders use that. Well, you're talking about, you know, something's commonality, but you're not saying you don't appreciate it. The way you first explained it to me, Mike, and I and I thought it lended itself better, as you said, an RFC is something that you very much expect to see. doesn't mean it's common or boring. It's just something that you very much expect to see. Mm-hmm. So if it's an American toad somewhere that you, you'd say, well, you'd very much expect to see an American toad here. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't exactly. cheapen it or lessen it. It just means that uh, it's not an exceptional find. Yeah. I also, uh, <laughs> I'm going to back up on this one a little bit because it has to do with back to the road cruising thing. And I, I got a, a email from uh, Rob Kreutzer, uh, whom folks that pay attention to YouTube know him as Smet Logic. And he sent me something, uh, a term called being getting Smet Logic. And I'm going to play this here. When someone says they've been smet logic, it means they slammed on the brakes for a fake snake in the middle of the road, and the cooler came up front that was full of melted ice and drenched everybody in the front seat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could see him do it thinking that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's hilarious as long as you stay dry and warm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So fake snakes on the road is something people do. It's it's not a jargon issue, but it, it is. There's a there's a term for it, and it's been you've been smet logic. Yeah, he doesn't always use snakes. I slammed yeah. on the brakes in Sonora for a Velociraptor. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I say I was in uh, the Yucatan, uh, the Yucatan uh, down in southern Yucatan, close to Guatemala border, and I'm driving along, and I found a a plastic dino fish, one of those uh, Dunkelosteus you, you on, still on have the it. road. I still have it. You know, my, my grandson <laughs> plays with it, but I'm like, I'm looking around for Rob Kreitzer. Like, why is he putting fossil, fossil fish on the road? But yeah, so he's gotten a number of people. Uh, and uh, that's kind of a funny term, but uh, one, one of the other terms that used to come up more often, but I don't see anymore is the term pillow mint herpers. Now, you guys remember this term? Yeah, if you stayed in a nice hotel instead of camping or sleeping in your car or something, right? Right. Yeah. Mixing the finer things in life with roughing it. Yeah. 
or or you stop and have a nice meal or something. You know, it always seemed like there were um, there were people that thought that herping should be a tremendous hardship if you if you weren't you know if you slept or stopped to eat or like you say got a hotel or whatever that somehow you, you weren't going hard enough. So. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. There, there are people who think too highly of themselves, and that's fine. <laughs> but I used to see that used more. You don't see that much anymore. Of course, uh, the idea that you have to stay in a hotel where they put a, a mint on your pillow is is the idea. And of course, I, I don't know many people who do that, but uh, it's kind of a funny, derogatory term. I put a panamint rattlesnake on my pillow once and called myself a pillow mint herber. That's clever. Very good. Very good. I see you're keeping in the spirit of this conversation here. Yeah. I see the term I see the term lifer on here, and I think that that crosses a few different uh, hobbies. Uh, but it's a really common one that I get asked about a lot. When if, if I say lifer, somebody will say, What do you mean lifer? You guys get that? Do people ask you what you mean by that? Yeah. It's well and it's, it's kind of a f- term that has different definitions depending on which person you ask in the communities right some people count only live animals some people only count things they photographed some people count dead or alive yeah i think it's really personal Uh, and and the way that you but yeah the general idea is it's the it's the first time you've seen that species i think jake scott will go so far as to say let's say we were side by side and I flipped a rock to the left and he flipped a rock to the right and I found it, he would take pictures of it, but would still need to find his own to call it a lifer. Even if he was three feet yeah. away from me. Yeah. There's some people that are that strict. I, um, I think he's that strict about, it. I think we had a discussion about that once. Yeah. Well, just to back up for a moment, we're, we're, the origin of the term clearly comes from birding, right? Because Life birders. Plant people are the same, uh, the same way. And even mushroom hunting people are the same way. But they all, they all, it all comes from birding. Probably uh, the, bird, the birding life list is something that right. that is the, clearly the origin for that term, and we've adopted it. And of course, the Audubon Society is one of the oldest groups of wildlife people out there, sure. right? Yeah, and and again, for a birder to life list an animal is something a little different from us life listing an animal, right? I mean, typically we can, if you if you find a new species of snake, you. You might, like a boa, let's say you find your first boa constrictor, you might get a, actually get to hold that and have a tactile experience with that. Whereas, you know, your, your, you know, your lifer uh, northern bearded tarantulate is something you saw flipping through some brush in South Texas. And, right. Uh, you know, so or you it, heard calling from the canopy, but you never actually saw it. Yeah. So, so the, the again, there's the permutations on what counts. If yeah. You see it, does it count? You know. Did you get your hands on? I, you know, I've known people are if they don't actually touch it, it doesn't count. Right. Try, get, try getting your hands on an albatross, huh? Yeah. Or or a gopher frog at Snake Road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've gotten yeah. one since then, Andy. Yeah. Pictures yeah. or it didn't happen. But yeah, so there's there's many different connotations or uh, derivations of of life or right. Personally, I you know I'd like to find things myself and see things myself. But if I'm with a group, if I'm with you two guys and you guys find uh, a corn snake and I haven't seen one before because I'm on the trip with you and you found it first, I'm still going to count it. Right. Cause I'm right. I'm, I'm that guy too. If we're all together and I get to see it, I'll go ahead and count it. I'm not 
going to feel that strict about it. My my time is limited and precious, so I make the best of it. There's a measure of practicality and the realistic chance that you might ever even see something ever again in your life, right? I mean, there's some species that we look for that are so rare and the place is so hard to get to. Like, Mike, you and I would count Lampropeltis herere as a lifer, right? Poor but neither of us, but neither of us flipped that snake under that rock. We were there was several of us on the island, and Mac played hero as he usually does. But I don't think I'm ever getting on my feet on that island again if I try. Nope. So of course that for me that that snake has to count. I'd say someone that's ever been to Sinaloa or or Durango and finds Lampropeltis webi, you're talking about an animal that's only been seen eight times or 10 times or whatever. I'm pretty sure you go down there with the expectation of life listing that animal and your buddy finds one. (laughs) If you're like, Oh, I still haven't seen one for myself. Like, okay, well spend the next 80 years of your life looking. It's not worth it to me in that, in that retrospect. Well, I think if you're part of the group that makes the effort, that should count for something, right? It's part of the expedition, right? We took the Herrera ferry and (laughs) yeah, you were part of the looking team, so right. But I have to say that you know, going back to that uh, white whale thing, I, I had a hard time finding a corn snake, a live corn snake. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd been with people that had found one, but I also wanted to find one for myself. And sure. I'd been with people who were like, "Oh yeah, we well, you know, while you were getting gas, we got one behind the gas station or or whatever." Or I'd find a lot of DORs or whatever. And it took me the longest time to actually see one myself alive. And I have no idea what that was. And, and that's not necessarily one of those things where I had many adventures and, you know, I expanded thousands of dollars and nearly wrecked my marriage over. It's just one of those things that I had a really hard time finding my own for some odd reason. Sometimes yeah. the white whale thing, too, is sometimes and I've heard of other people doing it, too, too, where they have one particular species that for some reason just difficult for them to to personally find themselves so i think there's a little extra sting on it for us when it's something that the rest of the group would consider common a long nose snake is a good example for me i had been in their range a half a dozen times i had seen double digit of them all dead on the road several where i passed it and it was alive and before i could turn around and get back to it another car ran it over and i started to call them Oh, long nose is my white whale. I got to get that monkey off my back at some point. And then finally on a trip to Arizona, in Nevada, I, I don't know, I saw 20. But Did for, you road cruise it or hike it? or? Uh, we had a good mix. Uh, we, we road cruised them and I, we so hiked you, one out. And, you cruised uh, them up and you hiked them up, them. hiked them out. Yeah. There you go. So, but yeah, you know, for a while, I would say long nose snakes were a white whale for me. And people would look at me cross-eyed when I'd say, uh, my white whale for this trip to the Southwest is a long nose snake. And people would laugh and go, well, you're going to see 20 on this trip. And I'd see three and they'd all be squished. Yeah. So it's just luck of the draw sometimes. I want to go back. I, we have, we're working off a list here for our listening audience that, that we put together. But I have one that's out of place. And it goes back to our earlier conversation about Nuding or noodling. Or yeah. Noodlers. Noodlering. And uh, David Burkhardt sent this one in, and he uses the term salamandering. I kind of like that. That's kind of cool. I like it. 
what you up to? Oh, I'm just salamandering. That's cool. <laughs> so I, I thought that one was uh, really good. I, I, I think I'm going to start using that one. I'm... I've definitely done that. It's fun. That's a fun. That's a fun thing to say. I like it. Especially like, you know, in the heat of summer, there's nothing else to do. You go find a creek somewhere and oh yeah, put on your old sneakers and go salamandering. Yep. So that's a good one. Um, uh, there's also a number of terms that are connected with f- photography that we haven't um, gotten to. And I'm going to play another, uh, another sound clip from our buddy Rob Kreutzer to uh, introduce this one. In situ, in situ, in situ. Which one is it? Which one is it, guys? Oh, I don't know. I'm intimidated to say because I'll feel stupid, but I say in situ. <laughs> I've said it wrong the whole time, and I know it's wrong, but I it's a habit. I say in situ because when I originally heard the term or, or when I saw it written, I thought it had to do with in situation. Ah. Not, not in situ, the the Latin phrase. I thought it was like, that's how you found the animal in the situation it was in. And it's unmolested and unchanged. Yeah. As seen is how I always translated it. Right. Yeah. I, if you I look, if you look up the definition, it's refers to something that's situated in the original natural or existing place or position. Right. So when, when we talk about in situ, we're walking along a trail and there's a, Bushmaster on the side of the trail and it hasn't moved and we see it where it is and we take a picture as we find it. That's in situ. Yeah. I think in Latin, the Latin phrase translates to basically in position or on site. Uh, It depends on who you talk to about Latin translations, but you know, it means right there as it is basically as is is good. I think a good way to talk about that. And of course, ex situ or situ. I like. I think I say in situ like the rest of you. Uh, I, ex situ means that the animal has been moved, or the animal has moved and is now in a new position or in a new place. So that's a, a term that gets kind of bandied around a little, and that's one of the the ones that trips up people that are new to field herping and new to the world of amphibians and reptiles. They they don't quite understand what that that term means. Yeah, right. It does not mean posed. Yeah. Yeah, I, it manipulated you, the snake was moving and you jumped in front of it. Um, there's obviously some goofing you can have with it. Like I've taken a picture of a pile of rocks and said, "Here's a ground snake in situ." <laughs> but yeah, then sure. you, you sure. flip one and you take a picture of it as flip. Yeah, and then you you say that because you don't want to get into an argument of whether that's in situ or not or in situ because it's that's not how the animal was before you manipulated the environment around it, but it yeah. is as you found it before you flip the lights on. Right. And I think on, on the other extreme of that is something we call Grismeresque, which is a reference to uh, herpetologist Lee Grismer, uh, a photographer and, and uh, uh, does some really cool stuff in Baja and now in Asia, Southeast Asia. But, uh, and what we're referring to is it was, he kind of coined the idea of a, what we call a wide angle photo with the animal in the habitat that it lives in. But you can see, you see the animal and then you see a lot of the habitat around the animal, right? And it's hard to impress, but these photos are phenomenal. So it's not just a wide angle photo. It's a photo that's with the animal in habitat 
a wide angle of it, but a phenomenal quality photo. Well, this is where it kind of gets interesting because you can also fail at this. <laughs> yes, oh, definitely. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is why I said a phenomenal photo, because I, I'm not saying that I can pull this off. Uh, For example, let's go back to a Bushmaster along the trail. And you, you get your wide angle out and you take this great picture and the, the Bushmaster is where it is in the corner sitting next to the trail. And you see all this trail and then rainforest all behind it and to the side of it. And, and, and it clearly looks like it's not moved. It's in situ and it's also a shot of the snake and its surroundings, right? But suppose you take that Bushmaster and don't do this at home, folks. Uh, you coil it up on a branch and get the same shot. So you've got a Bushmaster in a small tree or on a branch or on a log or something, and there's rainforest and everything behind it. And it looks contrived as all get out. So, you know, that that's yeah. sort of when we say Grismoresque, we're we're talking to a type of photo that that tells a bigger story about the animal, right? It tells a story of where natural history. Or here it is where it lives. But if, if you manipulate the animal too much or you're, you try to get something too dramatic, for example, you know, posing an animal on the edge of a cliff so yes. that you can see, you know, miles of canyons beyond it. If it's something like a night snake <laughs> or some out of character animal, I mean, you can get away with some things like perhaps a rattlesnake, but you just can't pose any old critter like a toad or something. Uh, on the on the majest- at a edge of a majestic overlook, it's uh, it's extremely contrived, and everybody looks at that and goes, "Oh, nice photo." <laughs> yeah, you know, it's and I'm sure you guys have seen it. You've seen those uh, those wars of whether or not someone did pose the animal that way, and someone just immediately assumes that because it's too good to be true. Like you did not find that timber rattlesnake perched precariously on that bluff with no twigs or anything in front of your view but then you go out herping enough and you might see that one day and it's just a matter of did you have the skill to capture it so i've i've dialed back how much i i become an internet warrior and 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 calling people out on some of these photos that seem too good to be true but then there's there's the ones that are just too obvious you know when you've got a salamander sitting in front of a a wall of waterfalls (laughs) And the waterfalls are blurred and the salamander is perfectly clean and there's no glare. Um, it's a fantastic image, but yeah. um, <laughs> you'd go herping along those streams all your life and you don't see salamanders perched on the perfect rock like that. It just doesn't happen. It is a Grismoresque ex situ picture. Right. And we sniff that out in this community too, right? We sniff out the really phony pictures that are tried to be passed off as, uh, yeah, as that's my, that's I Grismoresque photos to me are, are not necessarily perfectly posed, but they're exhibiting some type of natural behavior or, um, they're giving you a hint of what you can look for. Yeah. That's why I try to say that they're exceptional photographs because yeah. it's hard to do correctly. We don't want to uh, hang any negativity on on Mr. Grismer either, right? Because that is his whole goal was to to tell. No, us I think he is the epitome of a good version of it. Right. That's right. why we named it or we call it after him. 
that whole book is fantastic. The book, the Baja book, all the, the it's just full of wonderful photos. Yeah. And it kind of leads me to another sh- shot, another photography term we use called the field guide shot. Yeah. So when I, when you say that to me, to me, a, a, a good field guide shot is tight on the animal so that it's, the animal is very much the majority of the frame. But then if there are identifying characteristics, you've included that somehow in the photo as well. So it doesn't have to be a natural pose, uh, but you can see the things that are important to define it from a, a, maybe a species that's similar. You've included those characteristics, but you've also mostly filled the frame with that animal. Right. If, and that's how I feel. That's how I feel. If you say it's a field guide shot. And to me, it's almost an entire style that some people really do make it art, even though I, I, I don't know. I sometimes I really appreciate a good field guide shot. Yeah. Yeah. They, and clearly they're, they're ex situ. Oh yeah. You know, the animal's been posed and, and the idea is to bring out all of the characteristics of the animal that, you know, you want to display. And I would say when you're doing a shot like that, we often, especially if you're working with what we call a hot, which I don't think we've mentioned, but we often would say a snake is hot if it's uh, venomous uh, right. or medically, medically significant venomous. So if some, if you've got a snake that's hot, that could put you in the hospital or, or worse, you'll have somebody wrangling that snake while you are focusing your attention on your camera and your uh, focal point. Somebody else is wrangling that snake for you so that you can get that really good shot. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the term wrangling because I, I was of the opinion that I invented that term or borrowed that term back in the nineties. But I think that one's popped up a number of times convergently because it's a good term, right? Because you're controlling the animal, uh, in case of a venomous animal, the wrangler is in charge, right? The wrangler is the guy who says, Andy, you are too close. Take a step back or whatever. No, I'm not, Mike. God. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know what I'm talking about? That's the wrangler's Absolutely. job is to, not a, to look out for the other people. You have to trust that person, too. You, you have to trust that person, Um because if you're really involved with messing with your, your camera settings and not fully focused on what that animal is doing, you have to hope that your wrangler is doing exactly what they should be doing, which is either communicating to you or moving that snake where it's safe. You're a lot closer to that animal than you, than you think you are when you're looking through the viewfinder. And so it's really good to have someone posted up over your shoulder with a snake hook to keep the animal and you safe. There's also the there's also um, in the muggle world. I, hate, I don't know if I should use that term or not, but the folks that look at your pictures and they go, "How close were you? You must have been right, right on top of that." I'm like, "No, not really. I'm using one to three hundred millimeter sure. zoom lens, and I'm I'm actually four foot away from it, but I'm zero. You know, I've got got it zeroed in perfectly." One, I, this is a term I use a lot, and I certainly didn't coin it, but uh, I've heard it from my grandparents, and that's where I, I, why I say it. But the catbird seat, and for somebody who hasn't been in the situation uh, where maybe it's been said is, let's say you have three, four people kind of semi-circle around a snake, and somebody's wrangling that snake. Somebody's got it either under their hands or under uh, some object, a hat or or a or whatever it is, a frisbee or something, holding holding that over the snake so that it'll calm down and just coil up, and maybe everybody gets ten or twenty or even thirty seconds to shoot it. 
you never know where the head is going to be, right? It's a it's a crapshoot on where that where the best angle for this field guide style shot is going to be. And so when you pop your hands up or you pop the hat off of the snake or what have you, the person that gets that shot that everybody wants, I always say they're in the catbird seat, right? So that's a that's a term that I say all the time is it's usually the best view is is how I take the that term to mean. Whoever has the best view has the catbird seat. Yeah, you're sitting in the catbird seat. I I use that now too. I like that. Yeah. I like that. And I'll sit, you know, be like, oh yeah, Justin's in the catbird. It's a real crapshoot though. Right. <laughs> well, do you you find yourself in that position and you get the shots you're happy with, and then you try the snake sitting still or the lizard or whatever the subject might be, and then you find yourself going, Hey, hey you you know, you've got your friend that's you know has been frustrated with not getting a good shot of that animal before, and you go, Hey, hey, Sneaky. I've done this, I've done yeah. this before. Hey, Mac slip in here real quick and I'll slowly instead of standing up and possibly startling the animal and, and backing away I'll right. like army crawl shuffle backwards so that someone can slowly lean over to get that same angle that I just had yeah the, the catbird seat is definitely the photography roulette uh, that we play sometimes yeah you don't know if you're going to get that good view I like how other people use that now because I think it's a cool term I don't exactly know what a catbird seat is, but I like using it. Something I heard from my grandparents would say, in fact, I could probably look it up and see where that comes from. Probably something Southern. Yeah. Well, you go, well, put together a book and you'll have it done. A jargon <laughs> book. <laughs> a jargon book. Yeah. Hey, uh, I don't get to experience this ever, but you guys kind of do. Um, and I know it's January now, but how was your guys' Hogtober? Ah, I didn't do I didn't do much. I did go out to my spots in October, but for me the big bigger than October is June and I went out all the time in June to go to the nesting sites and uh I I must have missed it by like 2 days. There must have been 2 days I didn't go for the hogs nesting and went out after anyway, there's 50 60 hog nests at this one hill. And I, I missed being there for them again this year when they're doing their so thing. Now you have to explain what Hogtober means. Oh, well, so <laughs> they seem to be moving more in October because otherwise they're hard to, well, they're hard to find in general. I think anybody who's looked for them. And Andy, you've actually seen hogs. So, yeah. Um, and, and by hogs, what are we talking about? Oh, hog noses. Yeah. Hog nose snakes. The heterodon, heterodon genus of snakes. Yeah. <laughs> I had to work to bring you back. Sorry, in. I I got way too esoteric there. But so yeah, the the hogs we call them hogs or hoggies, uh, hog nose snake. October is the is kind of the universal month where they all get the memo and they're they're out and about, especially in the southeast. But around around here for me, it seems June is when nesting season seems to be when they're spending enough time above ground that they're uh, easier to find. You know, that's a snake that I I can't think of very many others in, in North America anyways that have more nicknames or twists on their common names, right? Oh, Hoggies, sure. hogs, hognose, puff adders, spread adders. Yeah. Uh, what did you guys call them earlier? Meadow? Uh, <laughs> prairie. The, the locals around here call them spread adders, and they firmly believe that there's some kind of rattlesnake. I have to tell... I have to tell them that they're not all the time. Spreadheads, I hear that one. Spread yeah. natter. Spread natter is what the 
mushroom hunters and old timers I see out where I go, uh, that they'll tell me that they're spread natters out. So I call them a, I called them toad poppers once. It didn't catch on. Ah, I like that. I like that too. I like that too, but it makes me sad that they eat toads. Yeah. (laughs) It's the reality, right? Like it's like 80% of their diet or something like that. Just be thankful you don't have to eat them. Somebody, you know, the hog knows. (laughs) I mean, you've you've heard that, you know, that phrase, you know, once your data to go really well, eat a live toad for breakfast and then the rest of the day just gets better. Mark Twain. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, we're almost at the end of our list here. And I think, uh, what do we, we've uh, talked about pretty much everything I wanted to talk about, but is, is there something you guys wanted to bring up that I didn't cover or didn't put in these notes? Oh, I know what we didn't talk about. What? Uh, and go ahead if you have something, but I I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss. Okay. I also got a note from our friend, Steve Marks. And he brought up the term pit tag. And I got to thinking about that a little bit. And people, you know, we use the term pit tag a lot. Maybe people don't really know what a pit tag is. And so I thought that was something to talk about. Uh, A pit tag is an acronym for passive integrated transponder. And a pit tag is just a little glass bead. Like the size of a long grain rice if you're trying to get it. Yeah, very small. And it has some miniaturized components in it. It has a uh, an integrated circuit board or circuit chip, if you will. It has a little capacitor in there, and it has an antenna. And it doesn't have any power, but it's a, what they call a passive transponder. It responds to a radio wave. And you take this, this little glass bead, and each one in this built into its circuitry has a serial number, and each one has a unique serial number. It gets injected into under the skin, excuse me, of, of a, a snake or a lizard or a trout or whatever it is you're, you're hoping to track. And you carry around a receiver. You have a, what they call a receiver or a sending device that sends a low-frequency radio wave out, and the pit tag will respond back. So it responds back with that with the serial number. It says, hello, I am 111-444-999. And so it comes back to the reader. You're walking around with a reader or whatever, and it tells you what the number of the chip is. And so hopefully you have that, that recorded somewhere. Uh, so that's, that's what a pit tag is, is, and it's used to, you know, track populations of animals uh, without, you know, it's, it's different from radio tracking, right? Because we take a small radio device and, and implant it in animals. And then that is sending out a signal uh, constantly. And then you use an antenna to pick up the radio signal, which is a, a useful tool for consistently locating the animal again and again over time. And that allows you to, to track animals uh, as they move around. But a, a pit tag is just basically to for you to be able to... Once they're in hand. Right, once they're in hand or nearby. And yeah. Steve has been pit tagged. Yeah. Yeah, he's he has one in his arm. A couple of our friends have been pit tagged. So we always know it's them. <laughs> yeah. There was... Uh... There was one on the list we kind of breezed past. It's a it's a group of terms. Um, yeah. And then I actually thought of one that I don't see on the list anywhere. Um, I'll bring up in a sec. Um, but the golden hour or the magic hour or snake thirty. Oh sure. Kind of relates to you know that thirty minutes before and after sunset or that crepuscular movement or sometimes it's the best photography light. Um, it's kind of used in a couple different areas of our conversations but 
Snake 30, that magic hour. Yeah, I like the hour of the rattlesnake. You know, if I'm out in Arizona or something, if you're out there, you want to make sure you get uh, your dinner done and your car gassed up. If you're going to be road cruising, you want to get all that stuff done before the hour of the rattlesnake because they're going to start moving and you want to be there for that. Very and then the other one was um, a kind of a verb that we do that applies depending on what region of the country you live in, but um, shining. Ah, You could do cut shining. You could do night shining. You could, you could be looking for arboreal lizards and snakes. You could be looking for eye shine. Uh, sure. Frogs or crocodilians. If you're in West Texas, I think your, your term of shining is different than if you're in the Everglades. But uh, it kind of all means the same thing, right? You're looking for animals with some type of spotlight at night. So you can shine up a gator. Right. And then it's, it's funny to me because it's, are you using the, the shining as the term of because you're using a spotlight to shine something or is it because of eye shine? Ah, yeah. Or, bell, or belly shine if you're talking about arboreal snakes. Yeah. I was going to say snakes in the trees shine, their bellies stand out. And sometimes it seems like... Uh, the tree frogs, the hylids, they seem to like almost glow at yeah. night. Or chameleons. Yeah. A lot of things that are tough to find during the day, even though you probably walked past 20 of them, but you go out at night. We saw that in Asia, Mike, with uh, the arboreal vipers. We only found maybe one or two during daylight hours that weren't because of the aid of them growing fluorescent green, yellow at night in our in our spotlights. Yeah. And their their bellies glow, their ventral right. scales tend to, to throw back a lot of light too. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, that's a good term. Uh, and we use that a lot down in Peru. Uh, we shine a lot of get a lot of eye shine from frogs, you know. You hold a flashlight next to your eye so that when you your flashlight hits the frog's eyes and bounce back, bounces you, back. You can right. see that that uh, little bit of, of reflection. So of course it could be a spider too, but Yeah. I found that in uh, so Really quick story about to Hawaii. I, I had gotten a tip on a specific road to go nightshine for chameleons because the same concept during the day, they blend in very well, but at night they'll, they'll glow bright green compared to the foliage. And someone had said, even their eyes will shine if they look in your direction. Well, I thought I was climbing a tree off the side of the road for a chameleon. And my wife was yelling at me like, don't fall out of that tree. And uh, I got about 15 feet off the ground and found a hand-sized spider. And <laughs> it was terrifying. I almost fell out of the tree. And she was like, I told you. And then we, uh, my chameleon hunt that night uh, was cut short. So I'd rather find a chameleon, but the spider would probably be cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it was neat, but um, it was very fast. And I was quite precarious. We're, we're not as uh, arboreal as our ancestors might be. I know I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. I think we've done a pretty good job of covering this subject, but I uh, I want to end this up with a little snippet that I I remembered from old the old Field Herb Forum, and I went to look for it, and I actually found it. And this pertains to the idea of how do you explain what it is you do, you know, in terms using terms like herping and. And you have to go through this whole rigmarole of explaining, no, it's not, you know, some communicable disease. It's there's some viral disease. It's this it's instead. And it's this is from 2010 and it's a from Sam Sweet. And he's talking about the, the whole thread is about, you know, what are you doing? What trying to explain people what you're up to? And, and he says, 
Another fella and I were doing some late season salamandering and my buddy was shirtless in the heat and he had decided to get inside, I mean really inside, a large, very rotten log when a conservatively dressed older woman came along the trail with her tiny dog on a string. And she said, young man, what are you doing? I demand to know what you're doing. And my friend, who's covered in wood chunks, he gave her his best Jack Nicholson grin, and he said, lady, I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't that the truth? I'm not sure. (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. So I want to I want to thank you guys for coming on the show and and we had a I, I really enjoyed chatting about this stuff it was kind of fun and I also uh, got a shout out to some of our our contributors that include uh, Lauren Levo, Daniel Dye, Joseph Thompson, Steve Barton, Rob Kreutzer, Mike Rochford, Steve Marks, Nathan Chan, Dan Rosenberg, David Burkhart, Josh Ems, Kamel Shaponsky. Tom Ellis, Sam Sweet, he doesn't know it yet, Josh Holbrook, and thanks to Joey Cavateo for some jargon that I can't use on the show, but I laughed anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thanks again, guys, and uh, can't wait to see you guys again somewhere cool so we can can walk stuff up and and road cruise and uh, do some salamandering and uh, be pillament herpers and wrangle. I'll see you all at Snake 30. It won't be too soon. (laughs) Yeah, I miss you guys too. All right. Take care. Thank you guys. Well, thanks again to Andy and Justin for spending a couple hours with me on New Year's Day. It's now three weeks after the show was recorded, and I just want to touch base on a few things before we roll up this episode and cue that funky bass line. First of all, as I edited this thing, I got a kick out of how we all kept throwing in additional jargon while we were pulling apart other words and phrases, and often without realizing that we were doing so. You you get a few hurt people together, and that's what happens. Next up is the phrase catbird seat. I've always thought that this essentially meant the best seat in the house, and I wasn't wrong. The Wikipedia definition of catbird seat is as follows. The catbird seat is an American English idiomatic phrase used to describe an enviable position, often in terms of having the upper hand or greater advantage in any type of dealing among parties. The phrase derives from the common catbird's habit of making mocking calls from a secluded perch. So there you have it. The use of catbird seat dates back to at least before World War II, and some of the old-timey baseball broadcasters were fond of it. And I'm sure it goes back much further. It really isn't stolen from birders, although it does feature a bird. The next item up is road cruising. The origins of this phrase are still hidden in the misty mist, but Carl Caulfeld, uh, the patron saint of North American field herpers, Carl Caulfeld used the term as far back as 1957 in his book Snakes and Snake Hunting. Uh, So this term is older than dirt and slightly older than me, but certainly younger than the invention of the horseless carriage. And it kind of fits into that era when automobiles were battleship-sized heavy metal monsters and people cruised around in them. Moving on, uh, normies, muggles, civilians. 
I was thinking about these phrases again today, and, and really these are these are light jabs, if they are jabs at all. Uh, I kind of think of them as soft payback for the many years of being described as a weirdo and having people look down their noses and say things like, Snakes? What the hell's wrong with you, boy? So, uh, we're even. Well, maybe. So many of the words and phrases we use predate the internet, but it is the internet that helped to distribute them across all of the interested people in in, in this field. And, and some jargon fades, uh, and other phrases and words, they rise in popularity, uh, thanks to the court of public opinion. And as interest in amphibians and reptiles continues to spread across the spectrum of humanity, uh, I think we can expect that change will continue. And one more thing. Uh, it's clear from my discussion with Andy and Justin that pronunciation of some scientific names is, uh, well, variable. And if you are new to the world of amphibians and reptiles and to recreational field herping, that may be an issue that makes you nervous. Uh, you, you read many names before you hear them, so... So how the heck do you know the, the correct pronunciation? I mean, nobody wants to sound like a rube who just fell off the turnip truck, or jargon. But I'm here to take some of the pressure off. Uh, even folks who have been doing this for many years still have trouble with, with this, with pronunciations. I, I mean, I know I do. I, I have quite a few scientific names that I struggle with, um, like Terrapini. Uh, am I saying it right? Well, I don't know, but but that's what I go with, and, and pretty much... Everyone in my circle knows what I'm talking about, and that's the point. The point is that is that our little slice of culture accepts mispronunciations without without blinking an eye. It just kind of rolls off us like water off a duck's back. And if and, well, there's more bird jargon right there. And and of course, every area of interest in the world has a few pedantic twits who enjoy taking people to task about how they say things or do things, but. You know, we're here for the love and the fun and the glory and the adventure. And and so those people are just best avoided altogether. Uh, now, I've got something here that may be helpful. It won't help you much with pronunciations, but it may give you some insight nonetheless. It's a website called Scientific and Common Names of the Reptiles and Amphibians of North America Explained, which was painstakingly put together by Ellen Belts back in 2006. And, and see the show notes for a link to the page. Uh, Ellen was involved with the Chicago Herpetological Society, uh, but I've lost track of her after she moved out west some years ago. But anywho, uh, she breaks down the meanings of the scientific and common names of for the North American herpetofauna. And she notes whether a word comes from Latin or Greek or somewhere else. And, and so you can learn that longicata means long tail, or that Ritorum honors herpetologists Margaret Wright and Albert Wright. Now, this page hasn't been updated in a while, but it is still a very useful tool. So check it out, folks. And once again, thanks for listening to this extra long epilogue. And I also want to apologize for all the little thumps and bumps in the recordings here because uh, my redfoots are, they hear my voice and they're kind of hungry. And so they're over in the next room, uh, stomping the yard, so to speak. So note to self, feed tortoises, and then record intros and outros.
That's it for episode 31. I want to thank Justin Michaels and Andy O'Connor for sitting down and talking with me. It's really fun to chat with you guys. And folks, I'd love to get your feedback on this episode, uh, your thoughts on the format and suggestion for future discussion panels. Once again, I want to thank Anastasia and Tim and all of my Patreon people. And if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show running, you can visit patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word. And before I go, I want to remind you that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much That's a good starting point. And you can also join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and other herpsters. And don't forget that you can also contact me directly at so much at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And may you always find yourself in the catbird seat. And don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>